once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's easy to be a part of the majority culture, whatever that is, wherever you are. A lot of the basic assumptions and unwritten rules are in your favor. You feel comfortable and safe, and you tend not to notice when others aren't reaping the same benefits. But as the church, we're called to notice. David Cho, assistant pastor at City Life Presbyterian in Boston, Massachusetts, finishes the series Radical Love with this message entitled Power and Privilege, which covers Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Thank you for joining us today. We have David Cho with us. We're in a series, many of you are aware, it is called Radical Love. I'm going to come up right at the end and make a statement about the whole concept of why and so forth of this series. But uh, David uh, comes to us as our fourth and final, and uh, what a great end to the series. Just get ready. It is so good. It's so rich. But um, David and Sharon have two little children, uh, as I mentioned, from Boston, a city church in Boston, and uh, Boston, and uh, you're really in Boston. You know that, it's don't you? It's Boston. Anyway, uh, just a uh, uh, seven years there now, and God is using him mightily, a gifted young leader. And one of the things I've appreciated about this entire series is to see all these young leaders that have such an insight and passion for truth and uh, exalting Christ. It's going to be no exception this hour, I will assure you. So we're in for a blessing. Let me pray for you now, okay? Father, I thank you for David, and as uh, we think about radical love and what that really means, not just a little, kind of just try to love a little bit, but radical love. God, use him to open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts about what that might mean for us even this day. Thank you for him, we pray. In the great name of Christ our Savior, amen. Looking forward to hearing you. Great. Thank you, Randy. Um, As Randy mentioned, I am from Boston. couple other services that I preached at were appalled when I mentioned that there's no Chick-fil-A's in Boston. (laughs) So I was picked up at the airport, was asked, what do you want to eat? Anything at all. The world is yours. And I said, straight to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Acts 6, (laughs) 1 through 7. Let's read. It's in your bulletin. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me open us up in prayer. Father, we need not only your truth, but we need your spirit accompanying that truth. Father, we are coming upon an issue that is going to be difficult for many of us to receive. It's going to be difficult for me to share. 
But Father, as we know, your spirit, it comforts the afflicted. He uh, afflicts the comforted. But in all of this, it is all for the purpose of restoration, renewal of we as individuals and we as your body and your bride looking more in the way that you intended us to look. So we pray for that work this morning, even in our midst right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, I mentioned in the prayer we're going to talk about an issue today that is going to be kind of hard. And I just wanted to be real and honest about that up front and actually begin with a plea to you uh, to come to this conversation uh, not checking your baggage or your identity at the door, far from them. We can't have reconciliation when we ask people to do that. Bring everything that you are in all of your units. But come bending an ear, right, with soft hearts, with a willingness to receive. Truth oftentimes cuts, right? I'm in Boston, a good chunk of our congregation are medical professionals. A lot of them are surgeons, and what they always tell me is that you can't heal until you cut. But I want to assure you that we are in the presence of a God whose spirit dwells in us, who never cuts without healing. And so what we're going to hear today, what we're going to receive and explore together is going to be difficult. I want to be honest, but doesn't God always work through wounds? Isn't it always, always crosses that lead to the resurrection? So with that framework and with that spirit, if we could come to this conversation as brothers and sisters who maybe think differently, who come from different backgrounds, but are asking how do we look more and more like the body of Christ, like it will for eternity. Every tribe, tongue, and nation celebrating not just next to each other, but in and through the same spirit who reconciles people across differences. That's our desire this morning. The issue is power and privilege. Feel free to cringe. Because if I'm honest, number one, I'm looking around in this way, perimeters very similar to the church that I pastor in Boston. Uh, We possess a considerable amount of cultural power and privilege, and I hope through the sermon to make a case for that. But more importantly, I think usually when this conversation comes up, the intention of the person raising the topic is to make you feel guilty or ashamed about the blessings, the advantages, the privileges, and the power that you have. And I want to let you know from the front, that is not my intention. Whatever advantages you have, whatever privileges, whatever power you have are gifts given to you from God blessings endowed upon you, bestowed upon you from God. It is part of his indelible image stamped and branded on your, you and all of your Eunice. But I do want to argue that God never blesses without a desire to see us be a blessing in return. He never gives gifts without wanting to see us share them. 
So we ought not to feel guilty or ashamed about the power and the privilege that we own, but we do have to own it. And if we want to love not just radically, if we want to love authentically, if we want to even begin to think about loving at all, we have to come to terms with the power and the privilege that we have. We can't even begin to understand our neighbors or reconcile across differences until we come to understand who we are in everything that we have and everything God has given to us. That's the way I want to frame our conversation this morning. To do so, we have Acts chapter 6, and I want to split it up into kind of three movements, very simple this morning. I want to look at, from Acts chapter 6, I think we can call and draw out three things about power and privilege. First, how it works. Second, why it's important. And third, what we can do. Okay, so let's track along together, first with how it works. Look at verse 6. In these days, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, let me pause. What's going on here? Basically, uh, the early church had amassed this general fund uh, from which they pulled to meet the material needs of the widows in their community. And the reason that they did this is because, remember, this is ancient times, right? It's an agrarian society. Wealth is landed. It's an patriarchal society, women can't own land. Therefore, a woman's husband died, you had no means of economic production, right? Up the creek with no paddle. And I think this is one of the reasons why widows held pride of place in God's heart. And in this early community, there were two classes of widows. Uh, The text tells us one of them were Hellenists, and that's just a fancy word for racially Greek. And then there were Hebrews, which is just a fancy term for Racially Jewish. And here was the issue. Uh, The Jewish widows, by virtue of being in the cultural majority, possessed the cultural power. And therefore, when the time for the distribution came around, they always got what was due to them. They had people in positions of leadership that looked like them that were making sure that they had what they needed. The Greeks, on the other hand, by virtue of being in the cultural minority, didn't have the same story. And oftentimes they were going overlooked and forgotten and unseen. And I want to suggest to you that this is precisely how privilege works. Privilege has nothing to do with personal intentions. I think that's another conversation stopper around this issue, isn't it? When someone starts talking about privilege, you say, oh, wait, but wait a minute. I don't have anything against my brothers and sisters over there. I'm not mean or malicious. I love them. I'm not intentionally trying to press them down. But privilege has nothing to do with how you feel personally about an issue. It's bigger than that. It's about systemic dynamics that are at play that not only go unseen, but often obscure our ability to even be able to see. Right, let me me try to work this out practically. I think most of us in this room, since we were little, were fed the message of meritocracy. Right, let's get the elephant in the room out there. I'm Asian American, right? (laughs) 
immigrant parents, that was the message I heard from my dad every day. You work hard, mind your business, stay quiet, and you'll make it. And I'm looking out again, wonderful sea of faces, and I'm absolutely certain that all of you worked extremely hard to get what you have. But you know, we have to see that it's not just about our hard work. That we've also come to the game with advantages that the very message of meritocracy has kept us blind to. Right? Privilege is about blindness. It's not about meanness. Nobody here was charging the Hebrews with being bad people. They were, seeing, they were saying that the Greeks were going unseen. That's how it works. Let me get even more practical. Let me ask you a question. Think of your greatest heroes growing up. Did they look more or less just like you? That's privilege. Because you've been told from a very young age you can be somebody because anybody who's somebody looks like you. Or how about this? Uh, Do you or did you receive more money from your parents than you have to give to them? I joke, uh, my mother has a retirement plan. It's called her son. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that uh, over two-thirds of six-figure salary earners enjoy inherited wealth on top of their salary and that out of that two-thirds, 86% get the bulk, the majority, the lion's share of their wealth that way. Uh, I heard an economist say that it's something like playing a series of Monopoly games where winners from previous games bring their winnings to subsequent games. That's privilege. Or uh, how many of you, think think back to the high school that you went to. Did your teachers, your guidance counselors basically do everything in their power to make sure that you went to college? My wife works in a school. All of her students are basically first-generation college students. Their parents don't even know what a FAFSA is. That's privilege. Have you ever gotten a job, a little bit of help from a connection that you have? Of course you have. Let's not be naive. Networking is how the world turns. That's privilege. Not everybody has those connections. Now, again, the the point here isn't to make you feel guilty or ashamed about what you have. The point here also isn't to call you out on being ill-intentioned or bad people. It's asking the question, how do I get real about who I am and all of my meanness and what God has given to me? And more importantly, how do I steward the gifts and the privileges that he has given to me for the good of others and not just my own? That's the issue at play. But now, I'm sensing pushback. Either that, you're all really, really captivated, but I'm going to lean on the first. Some of you might be thinking, okay, nice presentation. You obviously did your homework. You're definitely from Boston. (laughs) But you don't know the odds that I've faced to get to where I am, and you are absolutely right. I don't. 
And more importantly, you need to be commended for whatever odds you overcame, whatever difficulties you fought through to get to where you are. It's a testimony to the fortitude of God's spirit branded in you and moving you where you need to go. But again, you can have odds and advantages at the same time. You know, there are three basic ways that we can benefit from privilege. Because of our race, our class, and our gender. I think this is why when Paul is pushing for equality, what does he say? There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's race. Slave nor free, that's class. Male nor female, that's gender. You can face odds in any one of those categories, but you can also have advantage in some of the others. Let me, let me show you how this works, practically speaking. Um, I'm seeing a lot of ladies in our congregation. Um, man, you guys have faced incredible odds because of your gender. Women earn, on average, 77 cents for every dollar that men do. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. My wife is a Wellesley graduate. That does not sit well in our household. It's horrible. But ladies, you also have to see that you've had your race if you're white and your class if you're what I call middle class or higher and sometimes even your gender working for you. When you walk into a store you can be pretty sure that you won't be completely ignored or followed around by, with suspicion by a security officer. You can be pretty sure that you won't end up dead just because you're walking around the street at the wrong time of day. Or let me speak for myself, right? Nobody's above reproach here. I'm going to throw myself under the microscope. Asian American, middle class, male. I have had my race working for, uh, against me my entire life. One of the things that used to annoy me growing up is when ladies would walk up to me and say, hey, you know, you're actually pretty good looking for an Asian guy. <laughs> I'm like, can you just not with that last part? <laughs> the Atlantic Magazine released some results. Do you know how many uh, Fortune 500 CEOs are Asian American? 1.4%. Our Ivy League educations are serving us well, huh? <laughs> Corporate upper management, when you widen the net, doesn't get any better, 1.9%. But I still have to see, yes, I've faced odds because of my race, but I also will never be followed around in a store or when I'm getting off the train late at night, afraid that some creep is going to track me down and try to get in my pants. Or my wife, she's everything that I am, just beautiful and not this. <laughs> and she's also a woman. And I, I tell her, you know what, there's actually one advantage that you have that I don't. Remember that for an Asian guy thing? <laughs> You'll never know what it's like to be at the bottom of the dating pool just because of your race. You are desired in our culture. I'm seen as weak. Or let's say you're here and you're a self-made man. Never had anything handed to you. Bravo. Overcoming poverty is probably one of the most respectable things that I know. But you have to see that your maleness, and again, if you're white, your whiteness, 
has been working in your favor. When you speak in a meeting, you don't have to worry about just being written off, labeled that bossy gal or that angry guy. There's some fascinating research done which revealed that when men dominate conversations in boardrooms, participation is perceived as being roughly equal. When women speak as little as a quarter of the time, people are saying, whoa, 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 these ladies are taking over. Racial minorities have a similar story. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked quietly to fall into line. Oh, you're subservient. You're quiet. You're not going to stir the pot. You're going to bend the knee, right? Nobody would expect that of somebody who wasn't a racial minority. You know, there are at least one of those three areas that either we never think about or when we hear someone talking about it, it just grates us. That's where you benefit from privilege. Because the reason that you can not look at that is because you can choose to do that. The reason you can say, I just don't see race, class, or gender is because you can opt out. It is not part of your daily experience and struggle of life in the world. And that's how privilege operates. All right, we've seen how it works and more than half the sermon. <laughs> I wanted to take a minute to look at why this is so important. Why are we even talking about this on a Sunday morning at Perimeter Church? And then lastly, I wanted to kind of move us forward, concrete, practical steps that involve an incredible amount of hope for us where we are, okay? But first, why it's important. I wanted to do that by looking at verses 2 through 6. Uh, if you'll follow along with me, I'll read quickly because we've already heard it. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Now, I realize you can look at that and draw the exact opposite conclusion of what we're going to argue. It looks like the apostles are saying it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, and it looks like they're just handing off this thing to other people. But I want to argue that what the apostles were doing shows us how deeply important this issue is. They weren't saying this isn't important enough to bother us with. Go find some other guys to take care of it. They were saying this issue is so important that we couldn't possibly be, do justice to the whole thing. We can't handle this on our own. We need more manpower. We need a full-blown system to run this thing through. And so they set one up and they grabbed the men. But who do they grab, right? It's not Larry, Curly, and Moe. Stephen. 
Remember him? Fortitude, bravery, courage, integrity. First martyr of the church. Philip, you remember him? One of the key evangelists to the Gentile world. You have got the cream of God's crop in charge of this issue. And my question is, why set up an entire system? Why appoint the cream of the crop to lead it if it wasn't that big of a deal? And here's why it's so important. You know, one of the things that it says about these men is that they were full of the Spirit. And I ask myself, like, why couldn't they just be competent, right? Set up the structures, right? I'm a structures kind of guy. So I'm like, hey, let me just get to it. Nose to the grindstone. Let's figure this out. But they were to be full of the Spirit. A deeply spiritual issue, right? The conversation today, this breaks my heart. The conversation today is happening basically by a particular political side with a particular political agenda and particular social movements with a particular social agenda. In fact, that might have been one of the things that made you feel a little bit nervous about hearing about this in church. You're like, man, are you just trying to get me to go to this side and jump on this bandwagon? It breaks my heart that the church is not on the front lines of this conversation. We need the people of God leading this. Instead, we're tucking our tails behind us and we're following suit from people that are just getting more and more polarized, more and more hateful to each other. When we have the gospel of Jesus that can take people that would otherwise be at each other's throats into the same home. It's a deeply spiritual matter that needs to be happening in the church. It needs to be talk, talked about, worked out, reconciled in the church. And in that way, it's also incredibly powerful, integral to our witness in the world too. Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. It's the end of a narrative, right? Usually we read narratives in the scriptures and we're like, ah, the end of it, nothing of real import. He just needs to close the story, right? Uh, Let's listen all the way through. I think Luke is trying to tell us something. He's telling us how the early church handled their power and their privilege was critical to their witness. The watching world saw this community of believers who were talking about the power of all powers, who is giving himself away, stripping himself of power for others, and they said, hey, nice story. Next. But then they saw this community of believers putting their money where their mouth was. Power looked different in that community and they drew to it like a moth to a flame. And it wasn't just the oppressed of society, right? Uh, Why do you think Luke tells us that priests became obedient to the faith? Remember, the early Christian community was heavily racially Jewish. Who were the cultural power brokers in the Jewish community? Who, 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 Who was at the top of the ladder? It was the priests. And they saw people at the top of the food chain using their power in radically different ways and they said, I want some of that. And it started this movement 
that changed the face of our earth as we knew it. Did you notice something? You probably did about the seven names of the men that were listed here. Do you see any Oz? Jeremiah, Hezekiah, Isaiah, Judah, Micah, not one. Every last one of those names of the men who were placed in leadership was Greek. Why does that make a difference? Remember who it was that was on the wrong side of power. Remember who it was that was getting passed over and unseen. Do you see what was happening? The Jewish leaders were saying, we can't just have token actions here and there. We need to subvert the system. We need to put those who are going unseen, unheard, and dismissed into the very seats of cultural power and authority. And they didn't. It was crazy. And the world says, I don't know anybody who uses their power like that, but it's pretty dang compelling. Tell me more. Are you seeing its importance? But now lastly, let's get some hope in here. And some practical stuff at the end too. But you know what? I'm a preacher. Preachers have to end with Jesus, right? It's like in the code. So let me actually do the practical stuff on the front end. And then we'll leave this place with a word of hope. What can we do? I think the thing that struck me the most was what it was that the Hebrew leaders didn't do. Right? They didn't like get defensive or make excuses or uh, cast forth an alternate narrative that could explain away the Greek experience. They didn't do that. What they did is they humbled themselves and they listened. They listened. And I think that's where this all has to start. Can we take a minute to try to see things from someone else's vantage point, to live for a minute in their shoes, especially if they've been going unseen and forgotten? Can we, as people blessed with an incredible amount of privilege, again, not feel guilty about it, not feel ashamed about it, but own it and come to the table and say, wow, there is just so much I don't understand. Can you tell me? Can you teach me? I'm all ears. It begins with listening. It's so ordinary. It's so mundane. But remember where our faith takes root? In a manger to a cross. It's always small things, right, that get big things started. So listen. But second, begin to give your power away. Now, I'm looking out, I'm guessing that there are some of you who are very, who have uh, a lot of influence over large spheres. God has appointed you in that place to use your power to do mighty things. But there's others of you that probably feel like I've got no power at all. I've got this much in a sphere that's about Yay big. Wherever you are situated, ask yourself, what power do I have? 
And how can I begin to share it for the good of others? But you know, this is costly. It's really costly. It's risky. It's going to make us feel uncomfortable. And the question I want to ask is who in their right mind would want to live a life that looks like that? What could possibly compel us to live so sacrificially, so counterintuitively, so uncomfortably? What could possibly do it? Keep that thought in mind. Before we get there, I want you to imagine something. Imagine you're a giraffe. All right, I know we don't use the powers of imagination enough in the Presbyterian church. <laughs> imagine you're a giraffe and you're building a wonderful home, beautiful home for a giraffe. I mean, you're a giraffe, right? Like, why would you not build a home for a giraffe? And so you're setting up the walls, you're opening up the doors, and what you're noticing is the walls are about yay thin, yay high. The doors look pretty much the same. Now, you've got friends down the road who are elephants. You love the elephants. Deep down in your heart, you love the elephants. In fact, you want a deep deep, 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 real, meaningful relationship with your elephant friends. So what do you do? You get on your phone, giraffe phone, whatever that looks like. It's probably spotted. (laughs) And you call your elephant friends and you say, hey, come on over. We'd love to have you in our home. So the elephant rumbles and tumbles down the street, walks up to your door and rings the doorbell. And you you open the door and you say, hey, come on in. The elephant looks around, sticks his trunk through, and it just gets stuck, right? Right where his ears are. But you know, you're you're smart, so you know, you grab your toolbox, you take the hinges off the doors, you're also resourceful, so you figure it out. And the elephant shimmies his way into your house. You know, he ruins some of the moldings and the dividers, but that's okay, right? You want him in your house. And he gets into your house, and you're like, hey, why are you looking so nervous and anxious? Make yourself at home. Be comfortable. And he looks around, and the chairs are all yay wide and yay tall, and doesn't really know what to do, so he takes his trunk and just lays it down on the seat. And you look at him, and you're like, what are you doing? Don't you know that those chairs are for your rear ends, not your trunk? Don't you know how to sit in a chair? And you're like, you're, you're, you're flummoxed. You have no idea what the heck is going on. And then it dawns on you. Your house needs some renovation. Uh, things need to get rearranged, reordered. Unless you take a wrecking ball to the walls of your house, unless you punch a hole in the partition of your dividers, It'll never be home for your friends. Don't you know that that's the gospel? When God created the heavens and the earth, you know what he was doing? He was rearranging the cosmos 
to create a habitable space for you and me. He was reordering and reorganizing his home so that one day we might be able to call it ours too. And then he took a wrecking ball to the walls of his house. He punched a hole in the partition between heaven and earth and he drew near. And even when the people he was doing that for hated him for it, right? It so upended our prevailing paradigms of the way that power ought to be used that we're like, we got to kill this guy. I don't know what he's trying to do to us. Even still, he said, if that's what it takes for us to be home together, here are my veins. Take it all. creation, the incarnation, the crucifixion. This is the tale of the power of all powers saying I will take every risk, bear every cost, live at all discomforts so that God and man can be home together. And that's what I wanted to leave you with this morning. To emblazon then in the core of your soul and from the burning, smoldering embers of the passion that you see in a God who gives and gives and gives until he can't give anymore. Start to say, maybe we can live a different way. Let's pray. Father, that you would have anything at all to do with us is mind-blowing. The eons of activity that led up to the creation and the formation of the world seems wasteful to us, risky, costly, uncomfortable for you, and yet you did it. To become one of us, to take on our humanity, born in a stable, pinned to a cross... We don't understand it. Why would anybody do that for anybody else? But you didn't. And your spirit now dwelling in imperfect creatures who often deny you, but who are in your image and redeemed by your blood, you take residence in our hearts and in our midst to really bring us home together. And we pray that all these wonderful doctrines of the Christian faith would get out of the clouds for us and begin to bleed its way into the inner workings and outer workings of our daily lives. May we use our power in a way that is fit for the king who has given his power away for us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, David, thank you. Stay here just a minute. Boy. Uh, thank you, thank you. That is an outstanding job. We appreciate very much you being with us. That's something I need. We all needed to hear. I'll tell you that for sure. So thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. I'll let you, uh, I'm going to have David down here where after we're finished, you're able to speak to him. Let me, we didn't put a song at the end of the service today and uh, with the idea that I can come up and take just a quick minute and just say a word to put an end to the series, kind of a punctuation mark. 
It's been now months ago that I went away in February and began to wrestle and think through the issues of where the next five years, starting this next September, you know, where are the big things we need to be looking at to make this church as beautiful a bride to Christ as possible? And one of the things that has, uh, I think, loomed large in my mind is that uh, we really need to think about radical love and what it means to embrace diversity in a, in a biblical full sense. I know when we hear that, there's all kinds of suspicions and questions and wonders. Let me tell you, our leadership group, the four men that, that uh, are on my team, the five of us have been walking through this already and been kind of going down the road of thinking, what is radical love in our personal lives and what does it mean? And boy, there have been a lot of eye-opening moments to all of us. I think this is going to be one of the great, great, great things of our church when we start thinking radical love. And uh, I know that there would be an easy jump to a conclusion that says not, I'll put this much like when we did our 25 year, we said, you know, we are a people who care for hurting people in this church, but we're not thinking strategically enough about how we do that. And we started our ministry of compassion and mercy and justice. And I remember there was a lot of fear and people were concerned and is this going to mean and what is it? And boy, look today, we're so thankful that our church has moved in such a, a compassionate direction. In a sense, we've put our, our money and our time uh, to peoples that need our time and money. And there are people who need our power and they need the blessings that God has given to us perhaps that maybe they don't have. And therefore, we want to think, what does that look like in terms of radical love? So if you want to make it simple, it's just loving like Jesus loved all people regardless. And that's what we're just trying to do. And I think as we put an emphasis on love, you cannot go wrong. I really believe that. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.